Hey everyone, welcome back to Nerd is the New Cool. I am Justin. And I'm John. Hi, I'm Pascal. How are and you? And Josh, I was going to say Josh is not here, but we do have a guest. Another another Claytonite, Major Pascal Gonzalez of the United States Marine Corps. Welcome to the Nerd is the New Cool podcast. What's going on, guys? Sorry to jump again. <laughs> yeah, I got really no, excited. What, uh, Pascal, tell, tell, tell our audience a little bit about yourself, why you're so cool. Uh, first of all, not. I'm going to go ahead and start with caveat. And, uh, uh, just to let everybody know, I'm, I am no expert in pretty much anything. Uh, I know a little bit about a lot of stuff. Uh, went to Clayton with these two jokers and uh, back in the 90s. And then, uh, you know, joined the Marine Corps after a while and just been kind of traveling all over the world. That's, that's pretty much my, my gig now. I, uh, I fly V uh, 22 Ospreys and I uh, did a little a short stint with President Obama there working for the White House and then, uh, you know, back to the fleet. So, about you're it. You're very <laughs> humble with some of these things. Like, to be able to say you fly Ospreys, you went to the Naval Academy, you're a major. Like, these are all... You, you, you flew you, for the... You flew, you flew for the president. You know, you're, you're, you're going to Japan in a month. <laughs> yeah. Casually, casually gloss over those things. It must be, like I said, it must be nice to be that cool that you don't think these things are cool. <laughs> definitely cool. It's just, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to be at the right place in the right time and, and we work pretty hard. So, it, uh, yeah, life, life has been pretty good. So. Yeah. Well, we're, we're absolutely honored to have you on here. We've known Pascal for a very, very long time. I hate to say how many years it's been now, but it's been a lot. And it's been a lot. He, honestly, he's going to be an awesome guest with us today because we're going to be talking about Band of Brothers. Uh, so there's obviously a little bit of correlation there. But before we get to that, we're going to talk briefly about what we just nerded out on. So, Pascal, you want to tell us about what you just nerded out on? Sure, yeah. Uh, no, actually, I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, again, not an expert, just a, a big, big Carroll Shelby fan and a car enthusiast uh, in general. But uh, uh, Ford versus Ferrari uh, was released in November of 19, uh, 2019. Uh, definitely been geeking out over that stuff. Uh, I thought they did a fantastic job, 20th Century, and uh, those guys, um, it was written really well and actually fits kind of our theme today, like talking about Band of Brothers, um, as far as the, the uh, responsibility the directors and producers took to get the facts right first before we, uh, before we talk about the, uh, the emotional appeal and what Hollywood would actually, you know, release and would actually uh, do well in the box office. So, uh, I thought they did a fantastic job, you know, sticking with the, the history and staying true to the, uh, the story itself. So, yeah. Um, so I've, I've watched it like five times, I think, since it was released. So, uh, admittedly so, my, my son Gabriel and I have, uh, have seen it a few times together. Uh, wow, it must be pretty good. So, who, so who's in it? <clears throat> so uh, Matt Damon um, is the, uh, plays Carol Shelby. He's one of my, my heroes. Not Matt Damon. Carol Shelby is. Uh, although Matt Damon is. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's got Christian Bale, who, uh, you know, better known for uh, Terminator Salvation and the Dark Knight uh, series for Batman. Um, he, he plays uh, Ken Miles, which is the uh, British bulldog, uh, kind of bad boy racer from back in the uh, early 60s, uh, who was also a friend, a good friend of Carol Shelby's. And, uh, and it, you know, those guys kind of just... It, it, plays out the, uh, the early experiences of Carol Shelby, kind of glosses over the fact that both Ken Miles and Carol Shelby were uh, World War II veterans. Um, and uh, Carol Shelby being a flight instructor with B-29s and uh, Ken Miles being a uh, tank driver uh, for the British Army. 
Um, and uh, anyway, so fast forward to uh, to Carol Shelby, you know, winning the Le Mans or having flashbacks <laughs> in Le Mans 1959 with the uh, British Austin Martin or Aston Martin team, and uh, and kind of goes after that and 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 how. Uh, goes into the story really, really quickly glosses over one of the most important, um, I think, historical uh, races that uh, to Carol Shelby and Shelby American, which is when they beat Corvette at, at Willow Springs. They kind of gloss over that as to uh, introduce Ken Miles um, with the uh, with the old 289 Shelby Cobra. And then uh, after that, you know, kind of we, we, we talk about the actual story of uh, how Henry Ford II was basically uh, – uh, you know, afraid that the, his company was going to go under uh, because in the, in the late fifties uh, and then into the sixties, you know, people didn't want the old Fords anymore. They were just kind of bored of it. And Chevy was, uh, was outdoing them, uh, you know, for the first time. And they, they were kind of looking for innovations. Um, soon after that, Lee Iacocca, another one of my heroes, uh, as far as the automotive world, uh, he's the guy that created the Mustang. So if you like Mustangs, he's your man. Um, he basically told Henry Ford II that, you know, they needed to buy out Ferrari because they were broke, but, uh, and kind of go into racing, kind of get outside of the NASCAR world and go worldwide. And then, uh, you know, Ferrari pretty much gave them the middle finger, so to speak. And then it created this big rivalry between Ford and Ferrari. And that's when uh, they uh, recruited Carroll Shelby to, uh, to design another car that could beat the Ferrari of Le Mans. He had been the only American to ever win it. Um, so a very interesting story. You know, th th there is some, you know, Hollywood dynamic in there that they add, but, uh, but the interactions and the actual conversations that were had are historically pretty historically accurate and, uh, and all around hilarious. Because uh, Carol Shelby was actually kind of like a con man. Um, and he's known for that in the, in the auto industry, which is amazing. Uh, he kind of caught himself into his way into, like he had like a, a backyard or a, uh, you know, mom and pop little garage where he built the car that beat Corvette, you know, which is amazing um, in and of itself. And then basically was selling the same cars to different people uh, just to get, you know, just to get the money in. So then he could build them and kind of delay uh, the delivery of these cars. It's, it's pretty amazing. And then when Ford kind of recruited him to be the, the guy to design the, the Ford GT40, uh, along with Ken Miles and some of his team, um, that's what sparked the whole you know, how Ford went to France and beat Ferrari at Le Mans, which had won, you know, five years in a row, basically. Uh, anyway, long story short, it's, it's a fantastic story. Uh, I could, I could talk for hours, probably already have uh, talked too long on it. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> but uh, I could talk for hours about, you know, in that story. And I really wish they would have touched more into kind of some of the little things that they, they might've referenced in passing, like the GT350 that was never talked about. That was, that was Lee Iacocca and Carol Shelby teaming up to once again beat Corvette. And, uh, uh, but, they, you know, that kind of – that's a parallel story. But, uh, you know, really, really interesting stuff. And then huge fan of the story, huge fan of how uh, 20th Century did that movie. So, so if we're a car enthusiast, you would highly recommend seeing that, it sounds like, yes? Absolutely. Yeah, you, even if you are, you know, a Corvette fan, God forbid, <laughs> like, it's okay. You probably enjoy this movie. Yeah, my uncle was a big Corvette guy, and I, I don't know why, but he is. So, fun <laughs> fact. All right. So, I just watched The Wire. Have you fellows seen that? Yes. I, I'm not familiar with The Wire. I mean, I, I know what it is. I just, I've never seen it. 
It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm actually, it's one of those shows that I've been wanting to <clears throat> watch for so long, but there are a lot of episodes and it's an hour long. And it's, it came out early 2000s. <clears throat> so I finally have time to get to it, as you can imagine. And so it debuted on HBO June 2nd, 2002, and it ran for, like I said, 60 episodes for five seasons. It's, it's about the Baltimore drug scene. And it's kind of cool because it kind of looks at the perspective from it both as law enforcement, but also from the drug dealers. And you kind of, you kind of empathize, empathize on the right way. You sympathize with both sides. You, you kind of see like, and actually one of the seasons even takes you into the, uh, into the schooling system about kind of how a lot of times the systems almost force student kids to honestly try and make a living through selling drugs. And then the law enforcement trying to help them or fix them or arrest them. It's, it's just really interesting. It's created by David Simon, who's also done shows. A lot of these are HBO shows, Homicide, Life on the Street, Show Me a Hero, which is a special on HBO, Generation Kill, which is one of my wife's favorite. I don't know if it's a movie or a show, but she loves it. Uh, and then Treme with old uh, John Goodman. That was, that was a big popular HBO show. It stars a whole bunch of people. I'll just talk about a couple. Dominic West is one of the main characters. He plays Detective James Jimmy McNulty. He's also from the TV show Chicago. And then there's, I mean, there's seven or eight other major characters. But you know, honestly, I think it's a it's a pretty great ensemble. And while Dominic West may be the main character, he there's plenty of time to see all the other characters and their kind of their stories. Um, Anyway, it's a great show. I would definitely suggest checking it out if you have time, which I think most people right now have a little bit of time. Yeah, for sure. I was I was a big fan. <clears throat> yeah, I saw it a few years ago, but it's probably something I'll have to rewatch eventually because I don't think Megan has seen it. But I'm not sure if this is her scene or not. Yeah, and I'm, show perspective. I'm gonna have to watch it again because everyone has told me, including my brother and everybody else, that it's the best show ever made, and. Mm-hmm. I think maybe my hopes were a little bit dashed because it was really good, but it wasn't the best show I've ever seen. So I, I'm going to have to rewatch it again. Maybe, maybe I'll appreciate it more the second time through. I definitely liked it a lot, but I wouldn't put it in my like top 10 shows. Well, there are a lot of lists out there that have this ranked higher than the like have this ranked as higher than the Sopranos as far as like, this is the best show HBO ever came out with. Yeah. Right. And so, Heck, I like which is a bold statement. That is a real bold statement. I I like Sopranos. I mean, the last season aside, and I also like Oz. Like, there's two off the top of my head that I I would Mm -hmm. higher than this one, but but it's still Mm -hmm. worth seeing. Definitely check it out. It's such a it's a really cool perspective on the drug the drug scene. It's it's definitely my. I mean, it's definitely a genre I could I could sink my teeth into. I mean, I love this kind of stuff, and Mm -hmm. I don't know why I haven't seen it yet. So. Uh, I'll have to put it on my list. And I, like you said, John, everybody's got a little more time on their hands. So, Pascal, you would, uh, you would absolutely love it. Yeah. I mean, I love You would like the show a lot. Shows. I mean, some of my favorite shows are, you know, the crime and, and, uh, and law enforcement, like The Shield and Sopranos to a certain degree. Uh, <laughs> but, like, you know, Law and Order for sure. It's one of my favorite long time. And NYPD Blue, I, I could go on forever. But that's cool. Yeah, I'm going to have to check it out. Now, I'm wondering if they would actually say that – uh, that statement about that being the best HBO show ever before the last season of uh, Game of Thrones. Though. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 don't I was going to say that too. I said before the last season. <clears throat> I, can't know I loved it. I know most people didn't. We've talked about this at length and I can't right now. 
I'm already in a mood. I certainly can't. This is going to put me in a worse mood. <laughs> All, right. All right. So, anyways, moving on. So, uh, what what I just nerded out on is a show, is season two of a show called Dead to Me. It's on Netflix. Um, if you haven't seen it. Um, so, the main character, Jen, her husband recently passes away from a hit and run. And she basically goes around trying to solve the crime. She, she runs into an optimistic free spirit woman named Judy, who has also recently suffered a tragic loss. And they met in a support group. And even though they're really opposites, they become friends, they bond. But then Judy tries to shield Jen from a very big secret that could destroy her, her life as she knows it. That's kind of the, the premise of it. Well, I can't go into more details because then it'll just kind of ruin some of the surprises. Uh, season one came out on May 3rd of last year. Season two came out on May 8th of this year. It was created by Liz Feldman, who also created Two Broke Girls. It stars Christina Applegate as Jen Harding. Everybody knows Married with Children. Don't tell mom the babysitters yet. It's, it stars Linda Cardellini as Judy Hale, who is Laura Barton in the Avengers movies. And she was also Thelma in Scooby-Doo. I love, I love Linda Cardellini. She's also from Freaks and <laughs> Yes. Yeah, she's she's actually in a lot of stuff. Like she's like I saw her in this. I was like, oh, she's she's in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Sam McCarthy as Charlie Harding, who is in Condor and The Blacklist. Luke Ressler as Henry Harding, who is in It, both It's, uh, the new ones, and Riverdale. And then James Marsden as Steve Wood from X Men, Westworld. <laughs> he was in Sonic the Hedgehog, so I had to throw that one in too. Um, this is a dark comedy just because of the nature of the premise of it was a hit and run and she's trying to solve her husband's murder, but it is certainly a comedy. And the best way I can describe it, it's especially for the second season, it's, it's the type of show where you just kind of, you kind of want to scream at the television because they're being so dumb. Like it's, it's, fr it's like, there are times where it's very frustrating to watch because you're like, God, what are you doing? Like, Oh, don't be an idiot. You're Yep. She's going to do it. She's, she's, yep. She's doing it. That's great. So it was still really entertaining. It was something that Megan got me into. And um, we've been waiting for season two to come out. And we finished it in two days. Yeah, I saw <laughs> Megan post that online. I, I, I've been wanting to watch this show. And it, it sounds like I'm going to have to pick it up pretty soon. Yeah, you'll burn through it pretty fast, too. But it was it was good. It was entertaining. It was, it was funny. And it does have some twists and turns to it. Well, let me ask you a question. Is there going to be a third season? I have no idea. Okay. They don't end it like thinking like they're, they're certainly setting it up to have another season, but I don't know if like Netflix is going to renew it or not. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's, so that's kind of answers my question. You guys know, Pascal may not know this, but Lambert knows this. I have a real strong mm -hmm. aversion to starting a show that I know is not going to be, I can't binge the whole series. <laughs> I like to watch all of it at once. Yeah, I, I got you. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem with some of the shows. That unless you research it, you know, there's like two or three shows on Netflix that just end, and then you Google it, like, hey, when are they releasing the season? And they say, yeah, the show's been canceled. Like, what the heck? Or it hasn't been canceled, and it comes out, the next season comes out 18 months later. Oh, yeah. There's that. That's, that's crazy. It's so long now in between seasons. You're supposed to watch one episode a week. That's the problem. <laughs> well, okay. That's unrealistic. <laughs> 
I'm gonna I'm gonna watch five episodes in a night, maybe longer, depending, maybe more, depending on how long the episode is. <laughs> nice. I, got, I got a lot of free time. All right, cool. So awesome, awesome things we've all been nerdy on. But what we're here to talk about today is to go full nerd on Band of Brothers, the TV miniseries. So let's talk a little bit about the background, which I didn't really know this much about before I started doing some serious research. And it was actually a book first. And the show itself is based on a 2001, or I'm sorry, the show is a 2001 American war drama miniseries based on historian Stephen E. Ambrose's 1992 nonfiction book of the same name. Here's the part where you read, Pesco. Oh, okay. Uh, I get it now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I was looking like, oh, that's underlined for some reason. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, okay. So back to what I love about the show is the, uh, the historical accuracy, right? So this book was actually based on interviews conducted with the, uh, actual surviving members of Easy Company uh, 506 and the uh, uh, Parachute Infantry and then the, the 101st Airborne Division. So uh, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, the veterans were having a reunion at a hotel in New Orleans and the interviews were conducted as part of a project to collect oral histories of D-Day for the National D-Day Museum in, in New Orleans. Yeah, and so Ambrose, the writer, the author, was just so interested and intrigued by Easy Company so we started actually giving the drafts to the surviving members of the company and asking them for their input so they can incorporate their ideas into later drafts, which really just shows like how authentic this is, at least from the easy company's perspective. That's you again, Pascal. I underline, man. Oh, you, you got to refresh your document. Oh, jeez. <clears throat> All right. Are we, uh... <laughs> Uh, you know, this is this is what's fun about having a new a new person on. We get to see the intricacies of. I'll just keep doing this. Of Google Docs keep, and, and uh, you know. when you when you when you see this, that means you read. Yeah. <laughs> All right, hold on. Is it working? Okay, I'll I'll move on. Ambrose actually wrote of the finished product. We have come as close to the true story of Easy Company as possible. And. Pascal, you kind of touched on it, but, you know, the show, it, it tells the history of the aforementioned Easy Company, 2nd Battalion, 506 of the 101st, from jump training at Camp Tacoa, Georgia, through its participation in major actions in Europe up until Japan's capitulation at the end of World War II. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. It doesn't necessarily take us through, like, the, <clears throat> the entire war, but it does take us through Easy Company's journey through kind of, Their journey and their kind of major encounters yeah in it yep right it debuted september 9th 2001 on hbo and there were a total of 10 episodes yeah so uh tom hanks and uh eric genderson uh uh who spent months uh kind of detailing the plot and uh, uh like looking through all the individual episodes so and then steven spielberg served as the uh, final eye and was a co-executive producer uh with tom hanks so that's uh, you know some pretty big names there so two good guys to yeah, uh, two good guys. two good guys to run your show. So it stars a bunch of people, uh, but first and foremost, it stars Damian Damian Lewis as Dick Winters, Richard D. Winters. He's from obviously from Homeland and Billions. It stars Ron Livingston as Lewis Nixon, who is from you'll know him from Office Space and Swingers. I love Ron Livingston. <laughs> he's so he's pretty. He's really good in that show too. <laughs> you know, somebody else I love, Donnie Wahlberg, plays 
Carwood Lipton, and you may know him from Six Sense and Ransom. I know him from NKO TV or New Kids on the Block. Call me Donnie. <laughs> Scott Grimes, yeah, call me Donnie. Scott Grimes as Don, plays Donald Malarkey. He's from Mystery Alaska and also oh. one of the newer Robin Hood films. The Robin Hood with um, Russell Crowe. With Russell that one. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We got Shane Taylor as Eugene Rowe, and he's just from a bunch of random things. <laughs> All right, so we got Peter Youngblood Hills as uh, Daryl C. Uh, Shifty Powers uh, from the beach. You can see him from the beach. Uh, Matthew Leach for uh, as Floyd M. Uh, Tab Talbert uh, from again a bunch of random things. Um, uh, Michael Kolditz as Denver. That's Bull Redelman. Uh, you'll see him. You, you know, you recognize him from The Walking Dead and then uh, some other movies at, like like uh, The Negotiator. By the way, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. Uh, it's a good Kevin Spacey <laughs> movie there with Samuel. Uh, Dexter Fletcher is John W. Martin, Rocket Man, um, Eddie, and the uh, and the Eagle. Okay, not familiar with that, but um, and then Rick Dolan is that Eddie? Loose. Eddie the Eagle. Yeah, Eddie and the Eagle. What? Eddie and the, yeah, not familiar with them. Or is it Eddie the Eagle? I think it was Eddie the Eagle. Are you talking about the one with Hugh Jackman and Taron, like about yeah. the ski yeah. jumper? That's yeah. Eddie the Eagle. Oh, yeah. Again, not no, familiar right. either one of those. But, uh, well, I, I did see that movie. Uh, right. It stars Rick Gomez as George Luz from Sin City and Justified. James Maddy as Frank Frank J. Picante from the Basketball Basketball Diaries and Jersey Boys. Neil McKenna as Lynn D. or Buck Compton. He's been in a few. He was in Minority Report, Captain America, Legends of Tomorrow. I had to include a couple extra people in here. We got Frank John Hughes as William. Garnier. Garnier. Garnier, that's right. Who's from Catch Me If You Can. Remember Catch Me If You Can? He's one of the uh, he's one, he's of, one the, of the feds. Feds, right? Yep. Michael Fassbender makes an appearance in here as Burton Christensen. We know him from <laughs> 12 Years a Slave. Also, he's Magneto in all the new X-Men films. He's an awesome Magneto, by the way. We're talking about recasting all the X-Men characters. I'd be fine if he was not recast, but that's just, that's just me. We had Kirk... Uh, Acevedo as John Toy, who's also from the Thid Ren line and the new Arrow show. And finally, not he's not in a lot, but he, in my opinion, he plays a pretty, uh, pretty big role. David Schwimmer, he plays Sobel, and we know him from Captain Sobel. Sobel. And there's actually one more person in here that you didn't mention. Tom Hardy is in this as well. A young yeah. Tom Hardy yeah. is in somebody. I think he's in the Points episode as just a young private or whatever. <laughs> Right. Yep. So a little bit about, so, so that's kind of who's in it. A little bit about, let's talk about the production information. All right. So uh, Banner Brothers was at, uh, at the time, the most expensive TV miniseries ever to have been made by a network. Uh, I believe that, you know, with all the energy and money they put into it, it's good. Uh, and then until uh, suspended by the series sister show, the Pacific. Uh, so again, you know, same, same team. Uh, now talking about the Marines on the other side of the, uh, uh, of the the other theater, I guess during World War II. So another great show, by the yeah. way, if you haven't seen it. Yeah, you know it, it's funny. <clears throat> I've had people talk to me about it. And they're like, you know, it's just not that great. And I always say, <laughs> I think it's because you're comparing it to Band of Brothers. It's I, I would I would equate it to when people say Godfather Three is not very good because they're comparing it to what you would consider two of the best movies of all time. And I, I think this miniseries is one of the best miniseries of all time. So obviously, it's not going to be as good, in my opinion. 
but it's pretty darn good. Oh yeah, I mean, the Pacific, tell you, man, Pacific as, was as really Marine, good. As a Marine, I can tell you that that I should like the Pacific better, but I recognize that I think Band of Brothers was, you know, slightly above. Not that not to say that the Pacific wasn't phenomenal. Just you know, again, you're comparing uh, uh, you're comparing something to to probably the greatest show uh, ever made about the you know World War Two, in my opinion. Right, pretty good. How, well, what was it? But what was its budget, Pascal? Oh yeah, so uh, it's about 125 million dollars, uh, or an average uh, easy math for for Marines like me, uh, 12.5 million dollars per episode. So that's uh, that's pretty staggering. Yeah, that's a lot. And there was an additional 15 million dollars allocated for a promotional campaign, which included screenings for several World War II veterans. One of which was actually held at Utah Beach in Normandy, where U.S. troops had landed on. Uh, June 6, 1944. On June 7, 2001, 47 Easy Company veterans were flown to Paris and then traveled by a chartered train to the site where the series premiered. That's actually really cool. Yeah, that's that's really cool, man. I actually side side note, I, I got to meet some of those uh, some of those veterans on the uh, 70th anniversary uh, at Utah Beach. So in uh, 2000, uh, what is that? 14. That was yeah, uh, yeah, pretty pretty amazing stuff. So. That's cool. And I just love, I love how much input, how, how they kept the easy company super involved in this whole process, which is just amazing. The series was shot over eight to 10 months at the Hatfield Aerodome in Hertfordshire, England. Sorry. Various sets, including replicas of Europe, European towns were built there. And actually this location was the same place that they shot the film Saving Private Ryan, which we'll learn a little bit more about here in a second. There's a lot of connections to that. Mm -hmm. So let's look at some more. So here's kind of our part where we go into the episode where we talk about nerd facts. And honestly, there are just, there's a lot of information about different episodes, actors, and information about how the show was built. So Pascal, why don't you kick us off? Uh, okay, so with the nerd facts, uh, uh, the first one, the title of the book uh, in series comes from the uh, St. St. Crispin's Day speech uh, in William Shakespeare's play, Henry V, uh, delivered by King Henry before the Battle of uh, uh, Agincourt. Uh, Ambrose quotes a, a passage from the speech of uh, his book's first page. Uh, the passage was spoken by uh, Carwood Lipton. Uh, that's first Sergeant Lipton later on uh, in the series finale. So pretty cool. And Rick Gomez and James Matteo bonded during the boot camp training as the series went on they found out their characters had been best friends in real life too through george and frank george luz and then frank picante yeah uh joe liebgott who played ross mccall is portrayed as jewish in the miniseries and based on his name appearance under hatred of the germans his fellow members of e-company all assumed that he was jewish but the real liebgott was a roman catholic the son of Austrian immigrants, according to his son, his, his especially violent hatred of the Nazis stemmed largely from the belief that they gave German people in general a bad name. He was apparently aware that his fellow troopers thought he was Jewish, but never bothered to correct them because he thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting and, and definitely, uh, you know, depicts the, the dark humor that, uh, that uh, our armed forces have forward, you know, to kind of keep things light. But uh, that is yeah, yeah. Do you guys just constantly razz each other? I would. I mean, because we do it pretty much, and we're not in high stress situations. Oh yeah. No, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. The uh, the more the more stressful the type of community you're in within the military, I would say 
the darker the sense of humor is and and uh, perhaps I'll touch on it a little bit later when we talk about my favorite episode but uh uh yeah I, I mean there are some dark humor out there so I can see this as being kind of like a, you know mess with somebody for years that that you know during that time would probably be pretty uh pretty good uh, well, by the third episode of, uh, of shooting, the uh, special effects department had used more than uh, more pyrotechnics than were uh, than were used in the entire production of Saving Private Ryan. Uh, that's pretty amazing because uh, they did a lot during Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of major battles in Saving Private Ryan, but I guess there's a lot in this too. Yeah. Yes, there were. And during the boot camp training, Neil McDonough's weapon went off and damaged part of his face. After the wound became infected, he had to be taken to a downtown London hospital at 10 p.m. Not wanting the press to hear about it, he gave his name as Buck Compton, his character's name. He also refused Novocaine while the wound was stitched under the basis that a 1940s soldier's w- soldier wouldn't have had it. He was wearing his costume the whole time. He arrived back at base at 3 a.m. just in time for drills. That's a method actor right there. I was going to say, that is serious. <laughs> he, he is in, he is ni- a 1940s World War II soldier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Robert Downey Jr., I mean, he's got something to learn then. He's not as committed. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So something else about Neil McDonough, he, he was a catcher at UCLA, and so is Buck Compton, who's the character he plays. That's a, that is yeah, it's pretty good. good. That's a good job by the casting director. It really is. <laughs> That's a good job by whoever dug the little fact out. Though I'll tell you why. Yeah. <laughs> pretty obscure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So Kerr, he uh, is the American Czech Cherokee Indian equivalent to Stands Alone. Uh, the original members of the five five oh six were trained at Kerhi Mountain, Georgia. Uh, Kerhi was the cry for the hundred the the five oh six as they uh, clear the door. Uh, on the first jump, and it continued to be uh, to be their their war cry uh, in combat. And David Schwimmer actually ended up on crutches when he injured his leg during boot camp. This boot camp must have been intense. Yeah. Someone's getting getting shot at or shot in the face. Someone breaks their leg. <laughs> yeah, I think Buck. I think the I think Buck shot like his own gun. It just it was too close to his face. You know, on a blank. He must. Misfire. Misfire. Still, that's a, that's a director's nightmare. Everyone's dropping like flies. Okay. So, several innovations involved the use of uh, the use and firing of squibs, the small charges that caused the bullet holes in costumes and sets. The special effects team came up with the firing mechanism using compressed air instead of the traditional pyrotechnics so that actors could be much closer together when a squib went off with the dangers of inherent... Um, without the dangers inherent in conventional squibs. They also invented a new firing system whereby an actor was pre-wired with up to eight hits controlled by a button he activated that was hidden in the sleeve of his costume. So they really got pretty innovative and creative so they could make this as real life as possible. And safe. And safe. Yeah. Yeah. All right. uh, During the uh, liberation of Eindhoven uh, in episode four, the real private Edward Babe uh, Heffron, played by Robin Lang, uh, can be seen in one of the uh, one of the shots. He's sitting he's sitting down and waving uh, a kingdom of the Netherlands flag. Huh. That's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. A heavy day of filming required up to fourteen thousand rounds of ammunition. Good lord! Around seven hundred authentic weapons and almost four hundred rubber prop weapons were used in production. I don't want to put you on the spot here, Pascal, but 
when you guys are going through training, I mean, how often are you using like live ammunition? Like, like what does that look, what does that look like? So, there, I mean, there's different phases, right? So I mean, when we were doing, I mean, last time we did uh, some real live fire stuff other than just, you know, going to a range and shooting down range and paper targets uh, was basic officer, officer scores for me back in 2004. And so there are some ranges that you, you do live fire and maneuver, which is, you know, probably one of the most dangerous things we do for a bunch of untrained lieutenants. In this case would be, you know, a bunch of privates and some sergeants and lieutenants going through the, the airborne school. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we, we would do it. Uh, we had a few ranges where you had a maneuver uh, with like a pole platoon with actual live fire, you know, shooting 50 cals and your, your own personal rifles. Um, I would say it wasn't often, but, uh, but when it happened, it was, it was pretty cool, but it was pretty nerve wracking the day before knowing that, you know, you, you were going to have to trust a bunch of people that were just as knowledgeable as you, which is to say not at all in the, uh, in how to employ it. Obviously you had safety observers and whatnot, but yeah. I was just kind of curious how that is in real life, you know? Yeah. Now, now, you know, once you're in the fleet, it's just basically like a refresher, you know? So we go through, um, annual training where, with your service rifle or pistol where you just actually go to the range and there's a course of fire and literally you're just shooting at paper targets from different positions and different distances but uh, nothing crazy like that I mean the infantry guys obviously they train a lot more to it um, like like these guys did in the show and the movie right so talking a little bit about how they made this real life there's a guy named Dale Dye who was the production team consultant we'll talk more about him in a second but Midway through filming, he started cooking regular barbecues for the actors on set. So he would just make all these barbecues. This guy, Dale Dye, did a lot of stuff. We'll learn about him in a second, like I said. Before set, recreating the... Uh, you help me out with that, Lambert? Bois-Jac. Bois-Jac and Bastone was built in an airplane hangar using real trees as well as 250 trees created by the special effects department. So that Damn. whole thing, your favorite episode there, Pascal, is uh, in a giant airplane hangar. A lot of those trees had to explode. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it looks like uh, over 330,000 pounds of recycled paper were used to create the uh, uh, the snow for the uh, for the forest set. You know, the largest ever used in production. So um, it took four weeks to dress in the entire set. Would not would not want that job, and the the total budget for the uh, miniseries was 120 million of that. Uh, the construction costs were 17 million, so just over 10 percent. That's that's yeah, I'll believe it. And you know, the, again, kind of along the, the the size and scope in the 10 part miniseries, there were 500 speaking roles, and according to the behind the scenes film, the making of Band of Brothers, there were 10,000 extras in a TV show. I found that, that those two fun facts like so interesting because you generally don't have 500 speaking roles in like 120 episode or episode series, much less a 10 episode miniseries. Mm-hmm. There's so, because most of them are extras and the amount of extras there, that's crazy. And I don't really have any word out how to compare it, but I would imagine 10,000 extras is on the high end as far as average extras per episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if uh, The Walking Dead probably rivals that though probably <laughs> i mean maybe though but think about that that's a thousand that's a thousand extras an episode yeah that's crazy i don't think that they're anywhere near that but they're probably they're probably high but just to put it in perspective i mean anyway i thought that was pretty staggering yeah pretty so 
talk about again involving the Easy Company, uh, William Garnier and Edward Babe Heffron visited the set and actually ran up a 25,000 euro alcohol bill during their stay. Now, I don't know how long they were there, but I I think regardless of how long they were there, that's that's a pretty large alcohol bill. That's awesome. And I'm impressed. And that's coming from me. In the third episode, (laughs) Private Albert Blythe, played by Mark Warren, is shot in the neck and is last seen in the hospital ward. Blythe survived the war and stayed in the army, going on to serve during the Korean War, according to Together We Served, which I'm assuming is another book. I just wanted to write them off in the show, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> ah, all right. Uh, according to Matt Hickey, uh, O'Keefe, uh, because of the onset hours were so long, uh, actors frequently just uh, slept around the set. Uh, it's pretty uh, common practice, I, I believe. And uh, he jokes that uh, while on the concentration camp set, uh, he, Ron, Ron Livingston, and James Matteo uh, went to sleep at the uh, at the top of the lookout tower. Uh, they later woke up to find the, uh, that an assistant director had been fr- frantically searching for them for two hours. That's pretty comical. <laughs> Good place to hide out. Yeah. So I did I, I did some quick research, and according to ScreenRant.com, the showrunners for Walking Dead hire as many as 200 extras each season. Oh wow! See. They, so not nearly as many as we thought. She said even a, there could be as many as sixty on set at any time. But yeah, I would have honestly, I would have thought there would have been way more. They just reuse but, a lot of people, yeah, I guess. They just yeah, they just reuse everybody every time. So there's a lot of time on their hands. Yeah, they do. Um, a video diary by Ron Livingston chronicles the multi-step training process the actors underwent to learn how to simulate a jump from an aircraft. First, they jumped from three-foot crates onto sand, and then from and then from ramps. Next, the actors were placed into a harness so they could get used to how it would feel to jump with a parachute. Finally, to simulate the jump into Normandy, the actors leapt from a 40-foot high prop aircraft while wearing wires connected to a harness. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to go, I'd like to parachute at some point. Yeah, that's all about Skydiving, yeah. but not during a war while I'm getting shot at. While your plane is, yep. I, mean, I just, I just, I even, I mean, I, I can't even fathom that. It's just amazing what these these people did for us. So, you guys kind of ruined the surprise. This is actually the first screen credit for Tom Hardy, as Lambert mentioned earlier. I didn't know it was his first one. I just remember him oh. being in it. Isn't, yeah. that, isn't that crazy? Simon Pegg, speaking of other people that were in it, Simon Pegg and James McAvoy also had brief roles. Yeah, he's that uh, insufferable first sergeant in the Jeep. Right, that's right, yeah. And Mark Wahlberg was originally set to play Major Richard Winters. And uh, no, I don't see it. No, I didn't play it. And also, that's just too many Wahlbergs. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you don't want to outshine the the uh, Donnie there. It's, right, Donnie, I think Donnie did an awesome job. Uh, he did. That's amazing. And I don't think this is his first acting credit, but it definitely, in my opinion, catapulted him to where he's. I mean, he's taken on a lot of roles since since this. this we talking about Donnie. Donnie, yeah. I would say Donnie's been in a lot of uh, very good supporting roles, but well, right. But, but I'm saying in 2001 he hadn't necessarily been in a lot, and yeah, since this role, I think he's got some acting chops. So yeah. hey, I got a nerd fact that you guys didn't bring up. Let's see if I can. Uh, I can. Uh, I'm gonna have to wait till a little bit later uh, just to look at the the cast. Um, uh, I'm blanking out. The guy from uh, from Homeland that that plays the Winters, Damian Lewis. 
Damon Lewis. So Damon Lewis and Donnie Wahlberg were in a movie together in the 90s called Dreamcatcher, which is the... Um, oh, I remember that. It was a Stephen oh, King movie. Yeah, Stephen King movie, exactly. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, a little nerd fact. Uh, Timothy Oliphant's in that film, too. I know, I know my, like. I know my Dreamcatcher. I know it. <laughs> you know your Tim, you know your Timothy Oliphant. That's right. I know my Timothy Oliphant. What else we got, Pascal? A couple more. Uh, let's see where are we at here. Uh, uh, we talk about uh, Scott Grimes joked that the uh, he wasn't acting during the Malarkey's <laughs> sad shower scene. Yeah. Uh, citing that uh, as as the point where he really started uh, missing home. Huh. Interesting. So he kind of played on his own his own uh, emotions of missing home there. And then uh, finally, although historian Stephen Ambrose, uh, who wrote the book on which the uh, series is based, was not involved in its production, uh, he was enormously impressed with it, which, uh, you know, pretty uh, pretty good, right? If the creator looks back and says that he was, he was impressed by the show, I'm not surprised. Um, mm-hmm. Although I am surprised that he wasn't more heavily involved in the production. Yeah, you wonder how that kind of all works with executive producers and everything. And I would like to read this book because it sounds like we're going to talk about historical accuracy now, but it sounds like it's pretty spot on, but some people maybe have some different opinions with it. So I think, that, I think the book is super accurate. Yeah. So, and speaking of the historical accuracy, let's just kind of, let's kind of dive into that a little bit to kind of see how they were able to kind of preserve as much historical accuracy as possible. So one of the ways they did that was they obviously did more research. And one source was the memoir of Easy Company soldier David Webster, played by Eon Bailey, known from Fight Club. I think they even mentioned this in the, in the series. The memoir was called Parachute Infantry and American Paratroopers Memoir of D-Day and the Fall of the Third Reich. And it was published in 1994. Ambrose quoted liberally from Webster's unpublished diaries with the permission of his estate. They also, the production team consulted again, Dale Dye, bring it back to Dale Dye. He's a retired United States Marine Corps captain, and he's also a consultant for Saving Private Ryan, as well as with most of the surviving company veterans, including Richard Winters, Bill Granier, Frank Perconti, Ed Heffron, and Amos Taylor. A lot of consultants. Yeah. Uh, Dye, who portrays uh, Colonel Robert Sink, uh, introduced the actor in uh, a 10-day boot camp. Uh, you may know him from the Mission Impossible and Starship Troopers. You guys know who that? Can you guys picture who that is? I can picture exactly who that is. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's he's like the head of of what is it called? Um, like the Mission Control, whatever it is in Mission Impossible. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. He, he's yeah. as a military uh, colonel he's or general. In uh, quite quite a few uh, roles in Hollywood, he's always in them. Yeah, <laughs> quite a bit. He was in, um, yeah, he was in Entourage actually, which is something that I talked about recently. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the actors learned the basics from how to wear a uniform and stand at attention to sophisticated field tactics and parachute jump training. The average day was sixteen hours long, beginning at five a.m., rain or shine with strenuous calisthenics and a three to five mile run followed by several hours of tactical training, including weapons handling and jump preparation. During the actor's 10 day basic training, 10 days, it's a lot. I would have thought it would have been longer. They were required to stay in character at all times. The only exception was the officers who were treated just as poorly as the enlisted men by the training corps. 
which is good. Because <laughs> they had to learn just like everybody else. Had to them all in. The production aimed for accuracy in the detail of weapons and costumes. Simon Atherton, the weapons master, corresponded with veterans to match weapons to scenes and assistant costume designer Joe Hobbs used photos and veteran accounts to work with their costumes as well. Okay, so I, I'm sorry. I know we want to keep going forward, but that bullet right there uh, says a lot to me as far as the commitment for accuracy to this show because I know it's, it's a small note and it it's, sounds pretty cool, but the, to, to be able – I mean, there were so many different types of weapons per rank, per mission, per you know, specialty that each soldier had. Uh, whether you were, you know, had a, um, a, Tom, a Thompson or, you know, uh, what, what kind of sidearm you had or whatever. I, I, that takes a lot of research. And it's, uh, it, it's pretty cool that they actually reach out to the veterans and say, like, hey, you know, what do you remember? Who had what? Uh, so that they, the scenes were actually accurate. That takes a lot. And, and don't you feel like shows and movies that do this, you can just tell yep. how much far superior they are than other ones that maybe don't take the time. You just, you just feel the- like. You're so immersed in the environment. It's the, att- it's the attention to detail. And, and look, here's the thing, right? So That's what it is. Yep. In any, any walk of life or any specialty, uh, you know, when you go watch a movie that, it, that has to do with your passion or what, what you specialize in, you're always going to be more critical than everybody else, right? So in this case, this just happens to be, you know, as a, as a guy who's, who, who's served for a little bit, uh, every time, every time I watch a military movie or a show, I'm I'm overly critical or like you know analytical of the little things, and and this is one of those shows that, like you said, you can tell like the uh, the little details that they took. They didn't have to, but they did uh, to to kind of you know pass that level of scrutiny, I guess. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, okay. So all of the insignia. For, okay, here's another part, right? So all of the insignia. Uh, are either originals or exact replicas down to the uh, identical stitch uh, count on the seeming uh, on the, the screaming Eagle patch for the uh, 101st or the airborne guys, uh, the wings and all that stuff. Now that takes a, a, a lot. Um, cause I tell you, I can't tell you how many movies just get that wrong just cause they're lazy or whatever, uh, or they just don't want to pay attention or, or in one scene, it looks one way and another scene, they just borrowed somebody else's blouse and it looks a different way. So I think that that actually also speaks to that kind of the, the little, the little attention to detail that they had over there, the, uh, or I should say that the, the massive amount of attention to the littlest detail. So. Yep. Yeah. And, um, the hard shock that many of the paratroopers spoke of when they jumped at Normandy, causing them to lose their infamous leg bags, helmets, and other equipment was caused by the parachute the troopers were using, which is actually not the type shown in the TV series. Yeah, that parachute was called a T1, and it is deployed out of its pack. The canopy came first, then the suspension lines, and finally the risers connected to the harness. With this design, by the time all of the lines are fully deployed, the canopy is completely filled with air, acting as a brake for the lines, causing the paratrooper to come to an abrupt stop at the end of deployment, which I would imagine doesn't feel very good. The heavier the paratrooper and the more equipment he was carrying, the more sudden the shop or the stop or shock. Modern design parachutes deploy in the exact opposite way, which are lines first and canopy, greatly reducing the opening shock. On D-Day, not only were the leg bags a new innovation with which the paratroopers hadn't practiced, but frequently the aircraft were flying much faster than expected so they could avoid flak, and the shock of the opening was therefore increased. 
I mean, that's got to be, it's like multiple abrupt stops while you're, while you're going through this. Talk about like. Not, not good for, for longevity. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, so, all right. Most actors had contact with the, uh, with, uh, before filming with the individuals they were supposed to portray, obviously the surviving members of the 501st and uh, 506 and the one of, and the 101st. Uh, and then most of them, uh, also made appearances on the set, uh, so that, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then prior to production, the various directors were told that the actors were in contact with the veterans they were playing. If the actors said that veteran, the veterans disapproved or disagreed with something that was in the script, it would have to be changed. Many of the awkward actors frequently got themselves taken out of certain scenes after the respective veterans said they weren't there for the event in question, which is awesome. Yeah, that's super, super great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. For, for example, the original script called for Lipton, who was played by Donnie Wahlberg, to be cold and hostile towards Lieutenant Jones, who, you got to throw Colin Hanks in there. I forgot Colin Hanks made an appearance. Colin Hanks, yep. However, Wahlberg said the real Lipton said that he got on very well with the man in real life, so that's how Wahlberg played him. So he said, I'm not going to be mean to him because we're actually, we're kind of friends. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, almost all the main actors were uh, cast because of their uh, close physical uh, resemblance to the to the real life soldiers that were portraying. So that's that's a good starting point. Uh, Don Malarkey is seen uh, meeting an American-born uh, German POW uh, who had lived in Oregon, uh, Malarkey's home state, uh, but whose family had uh, returned to Germany before the war. That incident actually happened, uh, but with one crucial difference in the film: uh, Malarkey had hadn't known the man back in Oregon in real life. The two had actually worked across the street uh, from each other for years. Now that, I wonder why they didn't capitalize on that. That would, that would have been, I think, a very uh, kind of added to the emotional shock of it, right? So they, the message they were trying to show, but uh, that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the black and white invasion stripes on the wings of the C- C-47 in the scene where the soldiers are entering the plane are waving and sloppily, pla- sloppily painted. This is accurate. The word went down to all Allied air units on June 4th to paint broad stripes on the planes for recognition. Maintenance personnel used paintbrushes, many of them purchased from English retailers, to paint, paint the stripes on thousands of planes literally overnight. Concerned that the Germans might use Allied aircraft captured during and before Dunkirk to infiltrate and destroy Allied air formations, the so-called invasion stripes were added to identify friendly planes. That's awesome. Yeah, there's just so much really cool stuff in this. In episode two, for example, Days of Days, when the company first attacks the German gun position in Brecourt, there appears to be some type of error, and it looks like an American soldier throws a grenade and ex- explodes when it hits a German in the back, which I think we know that grenades don't work that way. They have fuses. However, it actually happened like this. Buck Compton, who we mentioned before, was, an all, well, he was actually an all-American catcher for UCLA, and he threw the grenade at the enemy with no arc, so it would explode as soon as it struck. However, unlike in the film, when they're going to hit the soldier in the back and exploded in the actual incident, it hit him in the head and exploded. So <laughs> they made it less, less gory. Jeez. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it didn't give the, uh, the enemy an opportunity to kind of cash. It probably caught him off guard before they died. That's, that's pretty, uh, pretty sick, but fun fact, I guess. Uh, Hanks is quoted as saying, uh, We've made history uh, fit onto our screens. We had the uh, we had to condense down a vast number of characters told uh, 
uh, sorry, fold other people's experiences in, into 10 to 15 people, uh, have people saying and doing things uh, others said or did. Now, we had people take off their helmets and identify to, to identify them uh, when they would uh, never had done so in combat. Um, but I still think it is uh, three or four times more accurate than most films like this. So, okay, so that's interesting, admittedly so, that uh, they did take some some liberties, but it still uh, acknowledges the fact that they, they did enough homework to make it more, vastly more accurate and uh, historically accurate anyway than, than other films. I, I could agree with that. I have I have thought about, about that watching it, where there are so many scenes where Winters or whoever is standing there with their helmet like under the nook of their arm. I feel like they wouldn't be doing that as much in real life when they're basically in live combat. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and speaking of that, shortly after the premiere of the series, Tom Hanks asked, asked Major Winters what he thought of Band of Brothers. The Major responded, I wish that it would have been more authentic. I was hoping for an 80% solution. Hanks responded, look, Major, this is Hollywood. At the end of the day, we'll be hailed as geniuses if we get this 12% right. We're going to shoot for 17. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, I, 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 love, I love how, how Winter says 80% solution. Like, who speaks like that? <laughs> no, I'm military folk. That is actually something we swear by. I know. That's what, I mean, that's, <laughs> what's amazing is that, anyway. I, I just, that's pretty awesome, man. So this, this show has had a lot of impact on a lot of people. First of all, a little bit about how it was received. It was a Golden Globe winner for Best Miniseries in 2002. It was also an Emmy winner for Best Miniseries in 2002. It was nominated for 20 Primetime Emmy Awards. A few other ones that won was, were Best Directing, Single Camera Picture, Single Camera Mixing, Sound Editing, and Cast, as well as a few others. Uh, well, 9.4 rating on IMDb and 90, and probably most most uh, impressive, 94% on Fresh Rotten Tomatoes. Those those guys don't give a lot of, a lot of accolades. So they, they, they hate things. They uh, <laughs> they are, and so 94%, uh, pretty darn impressive. So, uh, Band of Brothers, September 9, 2001 premiere drew 10 million viewers. Um, two days later, the September 11th attacks uh, occurred, and HBO immediately seized the uh, the marketing campaign. Uh, hence, with the second episode, drew 7.2 million viewers. Uh, the last episode uh, received 5.1 million viewers, the uh, smallest <clears throat> audience. So, that's what I think is so impressive about that is while it's a little bit over half of the original viewers, no marketing was happening. So, no one was telling anybody that the next episode was on, basically, besides yeah. like the next time on if you watch the previous yeah. episode. They had to remember that it was on. Right. Again. And, and during that time, I mean, this is, you know, this is 9-11. Yeah. I'm sure that they were preoccupied with a lot of other things besides remembering to watch the HBO series every Sunday night whenever it aired. And this was, I mean, this was in 2001. So it wasn't as if we had all these, these streaming devices and DVRs and everything like that. So you had to like tune in that night. <laughs> yep. You could yeah. record it. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's, let's, to dive into our favorite episodes. So the episode that I chose was episode two, Day of Days. Um, I think the reason, and I haven't seen it in a while, and honestly talking about this, now I got to go watch it again. So I'll probably have to do that in the next few weeks. <laughs> but the one thing that always <clears throat> stuck out to me about this episode was seeing them in the plane, like waiting, like, and you can kind of, 
you can you, you kind of have that emotional connection of that that nervous energy of like you know what's going to happen because it's history and it's d-day and it's june and everything and <clears throat> and you know what they're about to go through so there's just kind of that nervous anticipation that i feel just by watching them and like the flak starts, the plane starts to shake, and then they all jump out, and then everything's chaos, and just, but that's that moment when they're, when they're in the plane of just kind of waiting, the calm before the storm, really, you kind of make, like, I make a pretty good emotional connection to that, and then I like the, um, the assault on, the assault on Breakwork, kind of their, their first action, um, and, you know, Dick's kind of just thrown into it, because, their commander died. It's like, hey, this is your company now. Okay, go do it. And so, you know, somehow they they get through everything, and you know, just kind of, you know, more or less get their feet wet. And then just kind of the end of the episode of, you know, you're seeing everything land on D-Day after the invasion, and they start pushing in. I think just what I love about that episode is just the dichotomy of emotions you you kind of deal with. You've got this quiet anticipation, and then just it's completely ramped up to this crazy intensity like that all of a sudden. <laughs> And it's just it's just such a such a range of emotions. It's just, I think it's just so well done. Big fan mm-hmm. of that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's where you know winners cut his teeth as a leader, right? I mean, you've seen yep. him as a leader in training and everything. You've witnessed that before, and people love him for it. But um, just the way he just like, all right, it's me, and let's take charge. And you know, it's time to hey, you got this, you got that. Let's organize whatever hodgepodge unit we have because we have members of of all sorts of different companies landing into wrong LZs and whatnot. So. Yep. Um, yeah, I love that. Absolutely. I mean, I love every episode, but absolutely, it's a, it's a good start. Good yeah, start. and Pascal, the other episode that I was actually thinking about choosing, you chose. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's funny because I've talked to a lot of people that, that, that really appreciate and love the show as much as we all do, um, you know, folks in the military and stuff like that, too, and just kind of got – a lot of people say best down, right? So, And I'll tell you what, by and large, uh, a lot of people in the military – that I've talked to anyway, say Bastogne. And it's probably for the same reason. So the thing I like about Bastogne is one, the unit's already established. Obviously you don't get a lot of that storytelling part of it, uh, which I actually do love about Banner Brothers. But in this, in this case, it's more of the, um, look, these guys are going into hell. They, they, are, they are decimated already. Uh, they, they don't have ammo. They don't have equipment. They don't have stocks, right? And they're going into an absolute hell of an environment uh, where you know, they're, the people that were leaving are coming out and you can tell that, you know, they've been through hell, you know, absolutely trying to hold a line that's spread so thin in the worst possible, you know, weather conditions, uh, you know, fog, clouds, the snow's coming down, so there is no resupply. Uh, you know, the enemy is in force across, you know, the field from you and, and they're, uh, they're eating hot food and singing songs and stuff and you get nothing, you know, no socks, no uh, – no extra ammo. I mean, you saw Eugene jumping from foxhole to foxhole again, um, trying to get Surrettes, trying to get morphine from, from other people because they knew that mortar attacks were happening. They're already zeroed in on these. So if you think about it, uh, you know, tactically, it, it, it's, it's crazy that, you know, you, you are replacing a unit that's just gotten absolutely schwacked. I mean, they're decimated to, you know, more than 50% casualties. They're withdrawing. The 101st is coming or the 506 is going in to, to replace them. And they're literally going into the same foxholes and defensive positions that just got mortared. So mm-hmm. guess what the Germans already have is the entire firing solution on all of those foxholes, right? So you know what's coming. Again, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. 
And what these guys rely on is literally just each other. That's it, right? So uh, everybody goes in their foxholes and how, how they get through that emotional time, right? So obviously Private Blythe did not so much, right? Some people just could not get past the, 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 the shock or the inevitability. But, uh, you know, when you get like Heffron and, and Picante and, uh, you know, Joy Toy and these guys are like, they just, they start laughing about the stupid stuff that they experienced in, you know, Curahy Mountain and all that stuff. Uh, or back home and whatnot. Uh, even Buck Compton, who was, you know, shell shocked and by all means, or for all intents and purposes, you know, out of the fight, but just physically there, uh, would at least talk about the girl in, in high school or whatever, you know, that he was showing a picture to the other guy. So uh, it's crazy. Uh, but yeah, that's, I mean, you know, haven't seen, now I'm a pilot. So, you know, again, uh, my my caveat is my my witness of combat in, in both Iraq and Afghanistan didn't involve, you know, kicking doors directly and whatnot. But um, but talking to those guys and the guys we supported and knowing what they went through and the kind of conditions that they lived in on a daily basis, um, in austere environments and whatnot, uh, and knowing what they had to rely on. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's amazing. And so, uh, I think it displayed the camaraderie, the brotherhood that, they, that, uh, those guys had in the most awful conditions, right? Anybody could ever, uh, imagine. Uh, the second part of why I love this, and this is my personal, uh, my personal love for the corpsman. So, uh, you know, and I think, I think, uh, Eugene, it, like, this is about Eugene, you know, most of the episode, uh, you kind of see him in action and then how he's viewed and, and treated by, by his fellow soldiers. Um, you know, in the Marine Corps, we don't have our own, like the army does. So what we do is we get them from the Navy and we call them, you know, corpsmen, the green side. So there's sailors serving on the green side and they get shot on all the time. And, and it's, it's kind of the same way, you know, the, the Eugene gets treated throughout the episode that it's kind of like, Hey bro, like, yeah, you know, you can stay over there or, or whatever. But in the end, when you really need a corpsman, they're there no matter what. Um, and, and I tell you what, I am passionate about my corpsman. Uh, some of my best friends, actually, you guys have met my, my buddy, Zach, that's now a trauma surgeon in St. Louis. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. One of my best friends and he's, he's a doc, you know? So uh, those guys have the darkest sense of humor, the thickest skin, and they will be there. They will, you know, they will go through hell to, to make sure they, they take care of you. So uh, I, I love that. And I think, I think Eugene um, is portrayed very well uh, throughout this, throughout the series, but in that episode, it's kind of a lot about him and, and the, the struggles they go through. And then all of a sudden you have to switch it off and go help uh, amidst, you know, immense amounts of fire and you're not shooting back. You literally have a, an armband with a cross on your shoulder that says, you know, I'm not supposed to be shot, but you know, they're running through a hellstorm of of of, uh, of of rounds going down range to to try to save the day. So, I think that's 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 why those two things are why this episode is is really uh, by far uh, my favorite episode of the series. Yeah, the camaraderie that's displayed there, and that, that kind of relates a little bit to my favorite episode, which is which is that episode actually. But I, I chose a second. My second favorite episode is is episode one, Kirahi. I just think that that first episode is just so incredibly well done. I, I, I enjoy the rapport. I enjoy seeing the battle of Sobel who, who Schwimmer just plays that character so well as such a weasel. Like you just hate that guy so much. And, and, and then winters and just how much more intelligent he is and how much of a kind of a silent leader he is. And just the, like I said, the rapport between all of, the entire unit and it's it's really just established in that first episode the trust and and the friendships and 
and yeah, it's 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 they they relate back to it during Bastogne, which is I think a pretty cool. I don't want to say it comes full circle, but it definitely you see like the building of those relationships early on, which I think is pretty key to this whole series. And I, and I and I think that maybe that's also a reason why Pacific didn't land as well because I don't think you necessarily relate to or you you don't necessarily see this this brotherhood as well developed as you do in this season in this in this mini series in Man of Brothers. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, and I think, and then true in real life too. You know, some of those camaraderies happen in in, in early on in training. Now, the five hundred six and the hundred first, they have a little a little different, um, I guess, different perspective. If you think about it in training, right? So I don't get to train. I never got to train with the guys that I lead or the guys that work for me or the guys that I work for. Uh, the hundred first and the five hundred six, you know, the airborne, they they train specifically to the airborne as units already established. Uh, so you had sergeants, privates, staff sergeants, captains, lieutenants already serving that they were going to actually deploy with, uh, which is very interesting. Um, so, you know, that's that's actually why. I think that that is actually accurate to how it actually works in, in real life, where um, airborne is kind of a follow-on. Like there's a bunch of – it's an infantry unit or a bunch of guys going through airborne school. Um and at the time, they were actually going through as their operational units, right? So uh, what we would con- consider something like pre-deployment training, which might last all of, you know, six months or three months, depending on your mission. Uh, these guys did a whole, you know, a whole year or whatever it was, training as a unit. And then they went to Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, and then they went to uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. They did all that together. Uh, so I, you wouldn't see that on the Marine side, right? Because... Uh, when we're talking about the Pacific, it's just guys that went to boot camp, went to infantry uh, school, and then they they went, they shipped, uh, and then they they you know you train with your unit uh, up until that point, but it wasn't to the level of, of the the five hundred six, which was like a newly created thing uh, for uh, at this time for the uh, invasion of, of Normandy. So, but yeah, no, it's I think all these episodes are phenomenal, and they all play a very key role, uh, and mm-hmm. they were very very well done. So, so overall. Everybody want to share really quickly why they love this miniseries so much? I mean, for me, it's the accuracy and the level of uh, commitment to, you know, trying to, to stay true to the story. Yeah. I think, and Pascal, I think you, you've touched on it a little bit, and Justin, you did too, especially with your choice of episodes, the first episode. It's, it's, it's not just about, like, the action. It's about the relationships. It's about the it's about the brotherhood that that these guys shared and continued to share until I think they're all uh, by now. I think they're all gone. But I think that's probably what drew drew people in. The action's one thing, but it's what happens between those battles and even during those battles that that really kind of tells the story and really kind of gives you it gives you a window into history and what did these guys really go through? Yeah. It's not 100% accurate, but it's for, for us, it's probably the best that we can do for understanding, you know, my, both my grandfathers were in, World, were in World War II. One was in Europe and one was actually in China, Burma, China, Burma, India, which is a theater that no one ever talks about. And so I don't, I never got to talk to him about this. So this just gives me a little bit of a window on kind of what it, what it might have been like. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, we watch a lot of war, wartime movies about whether it's World War II or other wars, 
you generally see like major battles or even they even tell the whole story from beginning to end. And I, and I think that that's, that wasn't the purpose of this. Like you said, it's, it was more about the journey of, of, mm-hmm. of you know, this, these group of friends. I mean, really that's what they became friends or at least they had these shared experiences while, while they may not consider themselves or weren't friends after the war, they definitely had this long lasting camaraderie. Um, and I just think it's just so incredible. I, I just, I'm riveted. The minute I turn it on, I just can't stop watching it. I, I, I am probably going to binge 10 episodes, maybe not 10 episodes in a row, but as many as I can until my, until my body tells me to go to sleep. Well, well, and now's the time of year it's usually on. Cause it's usually on during like <clears throat> Memorial day. Yeah. No, for, for, for me, yeah, I, I would say that I wasn't normally a binge watcher. Um, you know, I, I have become so since, but I, I think this is the first show that I cannot put down. And I just, I just, you know, watch it. You can't stop. You've got to keep going. Yeah, I'll watch one more. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm glad there are only 10 episodes because I, I would, I would be locked up in a house for weeks at a time if there were more. <laughs> so, all right, well, there it is. There's our, our deep dive, our, our discussion, uh, nerding out about Band of Brothers. I think we did pretty I good. I like it. That's awesome. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, guys. It's, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So now it's time for a little bit of nerd outreach. This is kind of how we wrap up the show, Pascal. So, of course, we're going to start with thank yous. And I'm going to thank our lovely guest, Pascal, for joining us today. I know you've got a beautiful day outside, and you're going to go hang out at the beach with kids. And we appreciate you taking an hour out of your, your life to join us and, and give us some insight into the old, uh, the old Marine Corps. <laughs> That's good, man. Like I said before, no, not an expert, just a fan, and, and I appreciate it. Um, yeah, and I was actually going to thank you as well. So. Thank you, Pascal, for joining us. We'll have to have you on again sometime soon. Maybe, maybe do it uh, over the Pacific. You, know, nice. you can, you can, you can show us Tokyo and see how that's or <laughs> Japan, wherever you're going to be in Japan. So, if you have any future show suggestions, go ahead and send them in via email to nerdisthenewcoolpodcast at gmail dot com, or you can use the hashtag nerdisthenewcoolpodcast on any of the socials. And you can like us or follow follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Nerd is the New Cool Podcast. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Nerd is the New CO2. And at this point, you probably know where you can listen to us because you've been doing it for many episodes. But if you're listening to us on Stitcher, for example, you can also check us out on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Just search Nerd is the New Cool Podcast. Personally, I use Spotify. Um, and the next episode... We're going to continue our journey, TV through the decades, but we're going to tackle the 2000s. Yeah, we were Lots talking of about, good shows. We were talking about this before we started the, uh, the broadcast. Pascal has a lot of opinions on some pretty popular television shows in the 2000s, so I'm sure you've got some thoughts, but maybe you can share with those with us later on. <laughs> so, thanks, everyone. Right. Yeah, thanks a lot, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.